Grace is a gift. It cannot be earned. It is given. Grace is free. Grace is stronger than the sin that binds us. And since grace is in Jesus, who wore our very humanity one with God, it is in us. His way can be our way. That's the Reverend Michael Livingston. And today he brings you a challenging message for Lent called The Gift in Grace. I'm Peter Wallace. It's day one. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's historic Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. Now to introduce this week's preacher, here's our host, Peter Wallace. Thank you, Sherry. Today on Day One, we're honored to have with us the Reverend Michael Livingston, a Presbyterian minister who most recently has served as Interim Senior Minister of the Riverside Church in the city of New York. Before joining Riverside in 2014 as Executive Minister, he worked with Interfaith Worker Justice in Washington, D.C., and prior to that served in Executive Leadership with the International Council of Community Churches and the National Council of Churches. He was president of the NCC in 2006 and 7, A writer and editor with numerous publications, articles, and book chapters to his credit, Michael earlier was campus pastor at Princeton Theological Seminary, where he earned his Master of Divinity degree. He served churches in Los Angeles and Queens, New York. Michael, welcome to Day One. Thank you, Peter. You have a lengthy and very impressive resume of service in and for the Church of Jesus Christ, most recently at the Riverside Church in New York City, certainly an iconic church in the mainline movement. You started there in 2014 as executive minister and eventually became interim senior minister, which ended with the calling of the new senior minister a few months ago. But give us your sense of this historic church and its amazing history of pulpiteers. It's a great honor for me to end my ministry at the Riverside Church. I never anticipated, expected, (laughs) dreamed that this would be the case, but it's really been a wonderful experience. For me, there's so much history, so much Mm -hmm. history, important history of progressive Christianity in the United States. It's had great preachers, as you alluded to in your question, and It's not just that there have been great preachers there, but there have been great preachers who've had a real passion for helping to transform our society and leading the Christian church in grappling with the great issues of the day, whatever those issues were throughout the course of the history of the church. So to be able to stand in the place where Harry Emerson Mm -hmm. Fosdick stood— to be able to stand in the place where Sloan Coffin did his leadership in helping to focus attention on the need to get rid of nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. to be able to stand in the place where the great James Forbes uh, Mm. preached, where Nelson Mandela came on his first trip to the United States after being released from, from prison and so many others was just an amazing experience for me. 
it's an extraordinary church, and it's not done yet, I don't mm-hmm. think, in leadership of progressive Christianity in the United States. Before joining Riverside, you worked with Interfaith Worker Justice in Washington, D.C. What did that work focus on? Well, I was the head of the work of Interfaith Worker Justice focused on policy, Mm. on changes in laws that can only be enacted by Congress that affect especially underpaid workers. Many of the workers in IWJ, there were 35 centers around the country in worker justice uh, centers, and many of them were undocumented Mm. workers Mm -hmm. who are at the bottom of the employment ladder and subject to all kinds of abuses by employers of every kind with all the power in the world and all the leverage in the world. Uh, So the effort there was to bring to the attention of congresspersons the plight of these Mm -hmm these workers. And that was the focus of the work that I did, policy mm-hmm. at the congressional level. And earlier you had a significant ministry with the International Council of Community Churches as well as the National Council of Churches. Tell us about those councils and what they're up to. Very interesting convergence that yeah. was not well known, but the International Council of Community Churches was formed 1950 at the same time that the National Council of Churches Mm -hmm. uh, began. And what's distinctive about the ICCC was it was the coming together of two councils of churches, one made up of all white churches Mm -hmm. and the other made up of all black churches. Mm -hmm. So here they were in 1950, really at the forefront of the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. saying, the Christian church ought not be divided by something like race, that God created all of us and we're all made in God's image. And we shouldn't continue to give impetus to the lie that the body of Christ is divided Mm -hmm. and the reality that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is probably the most segregated moment in the year. So I was happy to be able to serve those really vibrant community Mm -hmm. churches. And, of course, the National Council of Churches, not nearly what it used to be, Mm -hmm. sadly, as resources are being drained as denominations, especially mainstream Protestant denominations, but not them alone, look inwardly Mm -hmm. and deal with the cultural wars that are very much a part of the agenda of the faith community these days. But the National Council has had a wonderful history of progressive Christian uh, involvement uh, across uh, the wide range of member churches, Orthodox, Mm -hmm. Reformed, mainstream Protestant, historic African-American denominations. Just a remarkable Mm -hmm. uh, span of history that the National Council of Churches uh, lived out uh, in full view of a society grappling with the the major issues of the day. Mm-hmm. So you are an ordained Presbyterian minister and working in congregational ministry, I understand, has always been close to your heart since you first started out in Los Angeles. Yet much of your ministry career has been in leadership roles in church organizations. I'm wondering how that ministry path unfolded for you. Great question, Peter. <laughs> Ironies 
abounds. Yes. So I grew up in the 60s. I'm a child of the 60s, and my image of the church was Martin Luther King Jr. leading Mm -hmm. what was essentially a faith-based movement to change our society. So when I decided to go to seminary, influenced by ministers at my home church, I did not think I would become a pastor. Mm. I thought I'd be a part of this movement that would be continuing its work of transforming our society. But I met Edler Hawkins in seminary, a transformative uh, African-American Presbyterian clergy person, first black moderator of the Presbyterian church. And he saw in me gifts for pastoral ministry. Mm. And when I left seminary, that's where I started. But I guess something about my own desire to be more movement-oriented led me over the course Mm. of my ministry as it developed into these other areas of service. But I quite clearly wanted to return to pastoral ministry as the years brought me closer to retirement. And so I began in a small African-American Presbyterian church in Los Angeles and ended in the Riverside (laughs) Church in New York City, which couldn't have been uh, any more different if if, uh, they'd been different faith traditions altogether. Uh, And yet they had in common a a real commitment to a faith that transforms and heals Mm. the divisions and the wounds in our society and in the world. So what's next for you now? I'm going to take retirement very seriously. <laughs> Good for you. And I I don't expect that I'll be doing anything, uh, getting a paycheck. <laughs> but I, of course, do want to remain involved uh, in what's happening today. Right. We're sitting here in Atlanta, Georgia, with an election on December 6th that could— uh, you folks listening in February will will know the outcome. Uh, do the do the good folks in Georgia reelect Raphael Warnock and solidify a democratic control of the Senate, or do we take a step backwards mm-hmm. here? And and I'm never going to walk away until I die from involvement at some level in these defining struggles of our our time, mm-hmm. including. Let me just say the dire importance of climate change and our getting a hold of what is happening to our planet. Mm -hmm. Well, today we enter the liturgical season of Lent. I'm wondering how you typically approach this season leading up to Holy Week and Easter. I hope in step with the rest of the Christian world where we take seriously that the path the resurrection is a torturous one. Mm. The presence of evil in our world is real. And it requires that all of us reflect on the path that Jesus took and so many others who have followed wearing the very same humanity that, that he wore. Mm-hmm. And that we struggle individually and together to combat all the forces that would drag us further into the morass that we're already in. Mm. 
and rather into the light of recognizing in one another the image of God and making the world a place of justice and peace, resurrection, new life, new creation. That's how I approach the season. Amen. Well, your sermon draws from Paul's letter to the Romans from chapter 5. Would you read it for us? Yes, I'd be happy to. So this is the fifth chapter of Romans, beginning with the twelfth verse. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. So Paul makes the case for Jesus Christ by comparing him to the one man, Adam. And I'm curious what struck you in this passage as you prepared your sermon. I always appreciate, as I think Paul does, and the gospel writers, writers of the epistles, the grounding of Jesus in the Old Testament, in the scriptures uh, the, of the Hebrew uh, tradition. So I was struck by that first. That we're having to come to grips with not just the Christian church, but Jesus as a Jew. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I was struck by that. And then, of course, uh, grace. I, mm-hmm. I just, uh, I'm drawn. Yes, love is foundational. Yes, it's all about love and justice and, and peace. And grace, for me, is foundational among the uh, doctrines of the church. So I was strongly attracted to, to that as well. Michael, your message is titled, The Gift and Grace. Thank you for sharing it with us. Peter, it's been an honor to be a part of this really wonderful ministry, uh, Day One. And it's been a pleasure to meet and talk with you. And thank you so much for the invitation to share the gospel. Where are you? God asked Adam and Eve in the garden. They were naked, their humanity stripped to skin on bone. They had nowhere to hide. How big could the garden have been? Doesn't really matter, though, does it? It could have been the size of the whole earth, infinite in ways we cannot imagine a home of beauty with riches for the soul and the body, the heart and the mind, myth as reality. 
every need anticipated, every desire fulfilled. Nothing compares to this. This garden was better than that. They had only to set one thing outside the boundary of their exploration, their curiosity. One thing. One tree in a forest of infinity. One piece of fruit in an endless buffet. They failed. Then they heard God walking in the garden, and they understood what it meant to be naked. This is sin. Called out by God, hearing the judgment of God with this kind of clarity, hearing, where are you? Fully aware the asking is rhetorical, the meaning clear, the answer certain. Experiencing nakedness for the first time with the full force of awareness bearing regret and shame. This is sin, God coming for you, the garden decaying with every step. Do you know this reality, this sense of the garden disappearing all around you, relationships eroding, mistakes multiplying, tongue-tying secrets inhibiting freedom of speech, the sure knowledge that God knows where you are and what you've been up to, that no matter what you put on, your skin is exposed, all of it, every naked inch. I know you do. I do. Only the extreme narcissist among us escape the indictment of sin. They never hear, you've been served. God walking in the garden. They own the plantation. God would be trespassing. They are victims of their hubris, death to the sound of sin in their lies, the presence of sin in their strategies, their financial schemes, their political machinations, victims always inconvenienced by the truth. The Australian writer Shirley Hazard wrote of a character in her novel The Transit of Venus a destroyer who sees himself as a perpetual victim. But for all of us, there is no escaping the sting of sin, rebelling against God, denying God's image on every face. Time is a court of justice. The verdict will be read, justice done. The third chapter of Genesis is an echo, a defining context of Paul's fifth chapter of Romans. And I love that Paul doesn't give an instant of attention to blaming Eve for all of this. There are centuries of bad theology undergirding awful sermons from this toxic perspective. For Paul's community in first century Palestine, the issues were circumcision. Who's in? Who's out? obedience to Caesar or Jesus, faith or works righteousness. For us in the 21st century, it's racism, militarism, materialism. Thank you, Martin Luther King, Jr. First world or third world, haves and have-nots, Mars or Earth, then and now, the question is the same. Shall we live in peace as one people? or destroy one another for the vanity of exceptionalism. I am. We are God's chosen ones, no other.
Adam and Eve were so like us, wanting it all, respecting no boundaries, exercising freedoms that don't exist, taking whatever is before us, privatizing God's creation, price tags everywhere, everything for sale, rationalizing and legalizing theft, even the theft of human beings. If in the mythology of the garden, individuals began this sinning, we know now the perpetrators of the sins of injustice that imperil communities, cities, nations, the world, are collective. It is gangs, tribes, races, governments, corporations, international conglomerates acting together to carve up the universe like the colonial powers that created African nation-states in the modern sense where none existed, and in 1948 allied powers establishing the nation of Israel and igniting the never-ending war in Palestine. Today, in Africa and Palestine, Israel, God could be heard walking, if anyone was listening, asking questions no one wants to answer. My people, where are you? I wish I knew how we get out of this. Our own nation mired in the sins of our creation, genocide and slavery, white privilege and a patriarchy so entrenched in our way of being that our electorate is still closely and deeply divided over issues decided by God in creation. The same divisions that were inherent in our founding constitution exist now. Indigenous people were savages. Blacks were property devoid of rights. Women and poor whites who didn't own land were second-class citizens. It is both too simple, yet so deeply and profoundly true, to say Jesus is the answer, at least for the Christian community. But how could one man, however exemplary, be the answer? Just as Adam in our text from Romans stands in for humanity, Jesus, in his divine particularity, stands in for us. We could be like him, just as we are like Adam. And if there is a word, a theological concept that Jesus brings to life in almost every New Testament encounter we read, and in words attributed to him, that concept, that word, that reality— is grace, that free gift, unmerited, renewing, and surprising gift of God, grace. It was grace that Jesus offered the woman at the well, Sir, give me this water. It was grace that sent away with dignity the woman caught in adultery and scattered her accusers in self-reflecting shame. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. It was grace showered over the crowd in the words of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, those who hunger, you who weep now, you pure in heart, 
for yours is the kingdom. You shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. You shall see God. It was grace that humbled Jesus in his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Grace in the tears Jesus shed over Jerusalem days before his trial and crucifixion. As he came near and saw the city, he wept. It was grace that Jesus showered on the criminal one cross over. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Here is the really good news. We know it, but do not trust it nearly enough. Grace is a gift. It cannot be earned. It is given. And here is the gift in grace in three parts. Grace is free. Grace is stronger than the sin that binds us. And since grace is in Jesus, who wore our very humanity one with God, it is in us, kin to Christ, God our Creator, Spirit our Guide. His way can be our way. God knows we need to walk that way now as never before. The garden is at risk. There is no righteous place for God to walk. We must ask more of ourselves, every one of us, still drawing breath, has a part to play. Yes, we need to organize to save our earth, decaying, while we fiddle with a carbon tax and bow to oil. And yes, we need to organize to save our democracy. The moment requires local organizing and large-scale movements across the nation to dismantle systemic racism and white privilege, to return to women control of their bodies from men and their laws, to honor the love of one human being for another as each chooses so to love, to secure and protect opportunity for those left behind in inner cities and rural communities abandoned by manufacturing, to protect our children from gun violence, now the leading cause of death for the most vulnerable among us. Movements can seem distant. The work of activists, others, this is our work every Christian worthy of the name. Desmond Tutu once said, Do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. We have a world to overwhelm. Bits of good to do every day, in every encounter. Our silence, our inaction, betrays our great faith, the God of our creation, the Jesus of our humanity, the gift of grace. Franz Fanon, the great writer and psychoanalyst who gave us the book The Wretched of the Earth, once said he learned to be responsible in my body and soul for the fate reserved for my brother. Friends, you are hearing this on or near the first Sunday in Lent, 
February of 2023. But it's early December as I record this, 2022. There have been mass killings in Colorado, Oklahoma, Virginia, and over 600 so far this year at a Walmart, in a gay club, football players in Richmond, Virginia. The war in the Ukraine continues. Has anything changed as we begin this Lent? It can. We can accept the free gift of God's grace and, like Jesus, care in our bodies and our souls for the fate reserved for our earth and our siblings in Christ, wherever they may be. Let us pray. Loving God of all creation, the earth is still our garden, and grace the fruit that never fails. Help us to live in your grace and love with the whole family of humanity and all the earth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Reverend Michael Livingston, a Presbyterian minister and ecumenical church leader who most recently served as interim senior minister of the Riverside Church in the city of New York. For a free transcript of his message today, The Gift and Grace, call us at 404-815-9110. That's 404-815-9110. Or write to us at Day One. 2715 Peachtree Road, Atlanta, Georgia, 30305. Please keep in mind that Day One depends on the financial gifts of faithful listeners like you. We're grateful for your help. I'm Peter Wallace. Next time on Day One, it's my honor to offer a sermon for the second Sunday in Lent. It's called A Whole and Lasting Life. I hope you'll join us next week on Day One. Day One Preacher Michael Livingston offers some final reflections on his sermon today, The Gift in Grace. And thank you, Michael, for illuminating this passage from Romans 5 in your sermon. You said Adam and Eve were so like us, wanting it all, respecting no boundaries, exercising freedoms that don't exist, privatizing God's creation, and so forth. And now we know what that can lead to in this world. How does it help us move forward to acknowledge this reality? Why is it helpful to be real about this dark side of humanity? I think we are where we are, Peter, because we don't acknowledge Mm. the dark side 
of our experience, the truth of our history. And that's as true for us in the United States of America as any people anywhere in the world. I think I said at one point, the Civil War isn't over. Right. And it isn't. We're still fighting that battle. We're fighting it in Georgia. We're fighting it in in New York. Uh, We're fighting it everywhere. We actually have folks who do not want history taught to protect the feelings, they say, of children. Our children have no hope of living in a world that does not have the kinds of injustices we have if we don't face the truth of our history. Uh, so it's important for us to look at the dark side, to to appreciate that we are responsible for it mm-hmm. and to try quite consciously, each one of us and together, to live into the, the truth that's possible for us if we simply admit mm. who we've been and mm-hmm. who we are so that a new future can be ours. And as you said, here is the good news. We know it, but we don't trust it nearly enough. Grace is a gift. It cannot be earned. It is given, and it's in three parts. Grace is free. Grace is stronger than the sin that binds us. And grace is already in us through Jesus Christ. Would you say more about what this grace is and how acknowledging it in our lives can guide us forward? Well, the first part of that is so important. We don't trust it. We don't trust that there's this surprising, unmerited opportunity given us by God to at any moment be forgiven, Mm. experience mercy and forgiveness and become new beings, new creatures. And we would rather cling to shadows, cling Mm. to silence, cling to untruths, cower in our fear. And grace can free us from all of that Mm. if we can accept uh, this shower of blessing that God makes available through us in Christ, in each other. Uh, That's what I'm trying to say with that. And with Desmond Tutu's words reverberating, you said we have a world to overwhelm with bits of good to do every day and every encounter. I'm wondering what might those bits look like in our daily life? Well, you see this in New York. Here's a place with 8 million people, and (laughs) we're buzzing by one another all day long. And yet, I think there's a reality that each of us is encased in our own little cocoon. And we don't do enough to, to see ourselves in our siblings, in our kin. There is so much that we can do for one another, small things, mm-hmm. that if added together, and I, I want to keep this connected to the kind of organizational work that needs to be done, the big movements I was right. talking about as well, but they go together. It is what each individual can do in the small circles in which we travel, to the grocery store, in the workplace, at church, in our neighborhood. It's those small Mm -hmm. acts of kindness and goodness together with how we work together to organize systemic change. It's that combination Mm -hmm. that has the power to transform our living. 
Michael, what's one thing from your sermon today that you hope our listeners will carry with them in the days ahead? It's all there for us. It's all there for us. We can't live in fear. We can't be silent. We can't pretend as if we don't live in a world that's been transformed Mm. by humanity, the humanity that we see so powerfully and clearly in the life of Jesus. And since him in men and women and children who have unafraid of whatever barriers might be before them, have lived out of this grace, lived out of this love, Mm. and who've helped make the world a place of peace and justice. Michael Livingston, thank you for being with us. You're very welcome. It's been a real pleasure and joy. Thank you, Peter. Day One is the voice of America's mainline Protestant churches. Visit us online at dayone.org. Our program is recorded and edited by Donald Jones and produced by Peter Wallace. Thank you for joining us. I'm Sherry Miller wishing you all God's blessings on day one and forever. Mm -hmm.